Chapter 7, In the Dark is Rising, Betrayal. Will was never able afterwards to tell how long he spent with the Book of Grammarai. So much went into him from its pages and changed him that the reading might have taken a year. Yet so totally did it absorb his mind that when he came to an end, he felt that he had only that moment begun. It was indeed not a book like other books. There were simple enough titles to each page, of flying, of challenge, of the words of power, of resistance, of time through the doors. But instead of presenting him with a story or instruction, the book would give simply a snatch of verse or a bright image, which somehow had him instantly in the midst of whatever experience was involved. He might read read no more than one line, I have journeyed as an eagle, and he was soaring suddenly aloft as if winged, learning through feeling, feeling the way of resting on the wind and tilting around the rising columns of air, of sweeping and soaring, of looking down at patchwork green hills capped with dark trees and a winding, glinting river between. And he knew as he flew that the eagle was one of the only five birds who could see the dark, and instantly he knew the other four, and in turn he was each of them. He read, You come to the place where is the oldest creature that is in this world, and he that has fared furthest afield, the eagle of Gwenabui, and Will was up on a bare crag of rock above the world resting without fear on a gray-black glittering shelf of granite, and his right side leaned against a soft gold-feather leg and a folded wing, and his hand rested beside a cruel steel heart, hard hooked claw, while in his ear a harsh voice whispered the words that would control wind and storm, sky and air, cloud and rain, and snow and hail, and everything in the sky save the sun and the moon, the planets and the stars. Then he was flying again, at large in the blue-black sky with stars blazing timeless around his head, and the patterns of the stars made themselves known to him, both like and unlike the shapes and powers attributed to them by men long ago. The herdsman passed, nodding, the bright star Arcturus at his knee, the bull roared by, bearing the great sun, Alder Baron, and the small group of the Pleiades, singing in small melodic voices, like no voices he had ever heard. Up he flew and outward through black space and saw the dead stars, the blazing stars, the thin scattering of life that peopled the infinite emptiness beyond. And when he was done, he knew every star in the heavens, both by name and as charted astronomical points, and again as something much more than either. And he knew every spell of the sun and moon. He knew the mystery of Uranus and the uh, despair of Mercury. And he had ridden on a comet's tail. So down out of the heavens, the book brought him with one line. The wrinkled sea beneath him crawls. And down he came plummeting, down towards the creeping wrinkled blue surface that changed as he grew closer and closer into a rearing sequence of great buffeting waves. Then he was in the sea, down out of the turmoil through the green haze into an astonishing clear world of beauty and pitilessness and bleak, cold survival. Each creature preyed on another. Nothing was safe from all. And the book taught Will here the patterns of survival against malevolence and the spells of sea and river and stream, lake and beck and fjord, and showed him how water was the one element that could, in some measure, defy all magic. For moving water would not would tolerate no magic, whether for evil or good, 
but would wash it away as if it had never been made. <clears throat> Through deadly sharp corals, the book sent him swimming. Among strange waving fronds of green and red and purple, among the rainbow brilliant fish that swam up to him, stared, flicked a fin or tail and were gone, past the black unkind spines of sea urchins, past soft waving creatures that seemed neither plant nor fish, and then up on white sand, splashing through gold-flecked shallows into trees. Dense bear trees, like roots, ran down into the seawater all around him in a kind of leafless jungle, and in a flash, Will was out of the tangle and blinking again at a page of the Book of Grammarai. I am fire-fretted, and I flirt with the wind. With wind, He was among trees then, spring tender, trees tender, with a new matchless green of young leaves, and a clear sun dappling them, summer trees full of leaf, whispering massive, dark winter firs that fear no master and let no light brighten their woods. He learned the nature of all trees, the particular magics that are in oak and beech and ash. Then one verse stood alone on a page of the book. He that sees blowing the wind wild wood tree and peewits circling their watery glass dreams about strangers that yet may be Dark to our eyes, alas, and into Will's mind, whirling him up on a wind blowing through and around the whole of time, came the story of the old ones. He saw them from the beginning when magic was at large in the world, magic that was the power of rocks and fire and water and living things, so that the first men lived in it and with it as a fish lives in the water. He saw the old ones through the ages of men who worked with stone and with bronze and with iron, with one of the six great signs born in each age. He saw one race after another come attacking his island country, bringing each time the malevolence of the dark with them, wave after wave of ships rushing inexorably at the shores. Each wave of men in turn grew peaceful as it grew to know and love the land so that the light flourished again. But always the dark was there, swelling and waning, gaining a new lord of the dark whenever a man deliberately chose to be changed into something more dread and powerful than his fellows. Such creatures were not born to their doom like the old ones, but chose it. The black rider he saw in all times from the beginning. He saw a time when the first great testing of the light came and the old ones spent themselves for three centuries on bringing their land out of the dark with the help in the end of their greatest leader, lost in the saving unless one day he might wake and return again. A hillside rose up out of that time, grassy and sunlit before Will's eyes, with the sign of the circle and cross cut into its green turf, gleaming there huge and white in the Chiltern chalk. Round, one arm of the white cross, scraping at it with curious tools like black long-bladed axes, he saw a group of figures dressed in green, small men, made smaller still by the width of the great sign. He saw one of these figures whirl, dreamlike, out of the group towards him, a man in a green tunic with a short, dark blue cloak and hood pulled over his head. The man flung wide his arms with a short bronze-bladed sword in one hand and a glinting chalice-like cup in the other, spun round and at once disappeared, then caught up by the next page. Will was walking along a path through a thick forest with some fragrant dark green herb under his feet, a path that broadened and hardened into stone, a well-worn undulated stone like limestone, and led him out of the forest until he was walking along a high windy ridge under a gray sky, with a dark mist-filled valley below. 
and all the while as he walked, though no one walked with him, firmly into his mind in procession came the secret words of power for the old ways and the feelings and signs by which he would know, henceforth anywhere in the world, where the nearest old way ran, either in substance or as the ghost of a road. So it went until well found that he was almost at the end of the book. A verse was written before him. I have plundered the fern through all secrets I spy. Old math ap mathanwi knew, knew no more than I. Facing the cover on the very last page was a drawing of the six circled cross signs all joined into one circle. And that was all. Will closed the book slowly and sat staring at nothing. He felt as though he had lived for a hundred years. To know so much now, to be able to do so many things, it should have excited him, but he felt weighed down, melancholy at the thought of all that had been done and all that was to come. Merriman came through the door alone and stood looking down at him. Ah, yes, he said softly, as I told you, it is a responsibility, a heaviness, but there it is, Will. We are the old ones, born into the circle, and there is no help for it. He picked up the book and touched Will's shoulder. Come. As he crossed the room to the towering grandfather clock, Will followed and watched him take the key again from his pocket and unlock the front panel. There still was the pendulum, long and slow, swinging like the beat of a heart. But this time Merriman took no care to avoid touching it. He reached in with the book in his hand, but he moved with an odd jerkiness, like an actor overplaying the part of a clumsy man. And as he pushed the book in, a corner of it brushed the long arm of the pendulum. Will had just the flash of a moment to see the slight break in the swing. Then he was staggering backwards, his hands flying up to his eyes, and the room was filled with something he could never afterward describe. A soundless explosion, a blinding flare of dark light, a great roar of energy that could not be seen or heard and yet made him feel for an instant that the whole world had blown up. When he took his hands from his face, blinking, he found that he was pressed against the side of the armchair, 10 feet from where he had been before. Merriman was spread-eagled against the wall beside him and where the grandfather clock had been, the corner of the room was empty. There was no damage nor any sign of violence or explosion. There was simply nothing. That was it, you see. Merriman said. That was one protection of the Book of Grammarai since our time began. If the thing protecting it should be so much as touched, it and the book and the man touching it would become nothing. Only the old ones were immune from destruction. And as you see, he rubbed his arm ruefully, even we in the event can be bruised. The protection has taken many forms, of course. The clock was simply for this century. So now we have destroyed the book by the same means that through all these ages we used to preserve it. That is the only proper manner for using magic, as you have now learned. Will said shakily, where's Hawken? He was not needed this time, Merriman said. Is he all right? He looked quite all right. There was a strange tight note in Merriman's voice, like sadness, but none of it of his new art could tell Will the emotion that put it there. It went back to the gathering in the next room, where the carol that had begun as they left was only now coming to the, an end, and where nobody behaved as though they had been away for more than a moment or two, or for any real time at all. But then Will thought, we are not in real time. At least, we are in 
pastime, and even that we seem to be able to stretch as we wish, to make it go fast or slow. The crowd had grown, and more people were still drifting back from the supper room. Will realized now that most of these were ordinary folk, and that only the small group who had remained in the room earlier were old ones. Of course, he thought, only they would be able to witness the renewing of the sign. There were others, and he was turning to study them when suddenly astonishment and horror caught up, um, caught him up out of all reflection. His eye had caught a face in the very back of the room, a girl not looking at him but busy in conversation with someone unseen. As he watched, she tossed her head with a bright, self-conscious laugh. Then she was bent listening again, and then she was gone as other guests blocked the group from view. But it had been long enough for Will to see that the laughing girl was Maggie Barnes, Maggie of Dawson's Farm, a century hence. She was not even a foreshadowing, as this Victorian Miss Graythorne was a kind of early echo of the Miss Graythorne that he knew. This was Maggie he had seen, last seen in his own time. He swung, he swung round in consternation, but as soon as he met Merriman's eyes, he saw that he already knew. There was no surprise in the hawk-nosed face but only the beginnings of a kind of pain. Yes, he said wearily, the witch girl is here, and I think you should stay beside me, Will Stanton, for this next while, and watch with me, for I do not greatly care to watch alone. Wondering, Will stood with him in the corner, unobserved. The girl Maggie was still concealed in the crowd, crowd somewhere. They waited. Then they saw Hawken, in his dapper green coat, thread his way through the crowd to Miss Graythorne, and stand deferentially beside her in the way of a man accustomed to making himself available for help. Merriman stiffened slightly, and Will glanced up. The lines of pain had deepened on the strong face, as if Merriman were anticipating some great hurt about to come. He looked acro across again at Hawken and saw his gay smile flash at something Miss Grace Thorne had said, showing no sign now of whatever had afflicted him in the library. The small man had a brightness, like a precious stone, that would bring delight to any gloom. Will could see why he was dear to Merriman, but at the same time he had all he had all at once a dreadful rushing conviction of hovering disaster. He said huskily, Merriman, what is it? Merriman looked out over the heads at the lively pointed face. He said with that expression, It is peril, Will, that is to come that is to come to us through my doing. Great peril through all this quest. I have made the worst mistake that an old one may make, and the mistake is about to come down on my head full fold, to put more trust in a mortal man than he has th the strength to take. It is something that all of us learned never to do centuries ago, long before the book of grammar I came into my charge. Yet in foolishness I made that mistake, and now there is nothing that we can do to put it right, but only watch and wait for the result. It's Hawken, isn't it? something to do with the reason why you brought him here. The spell of protection for the book, Merriman said painfully, was in two parts, Will. You saw the first part, the protection against men. It was the pendulum, which would destroy them if they were to touch it, but would not destroy me or any old one. But I wove another part into that spell that was a protection against the dark. It set down that I could take the book out past the pendulum only if I were touching Hawken, with my other hand. Whenever the book was taken out for the last old one, in whatever century, Hawken would have to be brought out of his own time in order to be there. 
Will said. Wouldn't it have been safer to make an old one part of the spell, not an ordinary man? Ah, no. The whole purpose was to have a man involved. This is a cold battle we are in, Will, and in it we must sometimes do cold things. This spell was woven around me as keeper of the book. The dark cannot destroy me, for I am an old one, but it could perhaps by magic have tricked me into taking out the book. In case that happened, there had to be some way in which the other old ones could stop me before it was too late. They, too, could not destroy me to stop me from doing the work of the dark. But a man can be destroyed. If it had come to the worst and the dark had forced me by magic to take out the book for them, then before I could begin, the light would have killed Hawken. That would have kept the book safe forever, for in that case, I could not have worked the spell of release by touching him while taking out the book, and so I should not have been able to reach for the book, nor would the dark, nor anyone else. So he risked his life? Will said slowly, watching Hawkins' sprightly walk as he crossed the floor to the musicians. Yes, Merriman said. In our service he was safe from the dark, but his life was in hazard all the same. He agreed because he was my liege man and proud of it. I wish that I had made sure that he really knew the risk he ran. A double risk, for he might also have been destroyed today by me if I had accidentally touched the pendulum. You saw what happened when at the last I did that. You and I, as old ones, were merely shaken. But if Hawken had been there, under my touch, he would have been killed in a flash, unbodied like the book itself. He must not only be very brave, he must really love you as if you were as if he were your son, said Will, to do things like that for you and the light. Ah, but still he is only a man, said Merriman, and his voice was rough and the pain back deep in his face, and he loves as a man, requiring, requiring proof of love in return. My mistake was in ignoring the risk that this might be so. And as a result, in this room in the next few minutes, Hawken will betray me and betray the light and mold the whole course of your quest, young Will. The shock just now of actually risking his life for me in the Book of Grammarai was too much for his loyalty. Perhaps you saw his face in the moment when I held his shoulder and took the book from its perilous place. It was only in that moment that Hawken fully understood that I was prepared to let him die. And now... That he has understood it, he will never forgive me for not loving him as much in his terms as he has loved me, his Lord. And he will turn on us. Merriman pointed across the room. See where it begins. Music struck up brightly and the guests began forming into couples to dance. One man whom Will had recognized as an old one moved to Miss Graythorn, bowed and offered his arm. All around them, couples joined in figure eights, figures of eight. To, for, for some dance he did not know. He saw Hawkins stand in irresolute, moving his head a little to the beat of the music, and then he saw a girl in a red dress appear at his side. It was the witch girl, Maggie Barnes. She said something to Hawkins, laughing and dropped him a small curtsy. Hawkins smiled politely, doubtfully, and shook his head. The girl's smile deepened. She shook her hair coquettishly and spoke to him again, her eyes fast on his. Oh, Will said, if only we could hear. <clears throat> Merriman regarded him somberly for a moment, his face absent and brooding. Oh, Will said, feeling foolish, of course. 
It would take him some time, clearly, to grow accustomed to using his own gifts. He looked again at Hawken and the girl and wished to hear them and he and could hear. Truly, madam, Hawken said, I have no wish to seem churlish, but I do not dance. Maggie took his hand. Because you are out of your century, they dance here with their legs, just as you do beyond 500 years. Come on, come. Hawkins stared at her aghast as she led him into a set of couples. Who are you? He whispered. Are you an old one? Not for all the world, said Maggie Barnes in the old speech, and Hawkins turned quite white and stood still. She laughed softly and said in English, no more of that. Dance or people will notice. It's easy enough. Watch the next man as the music begins. Hawken, pale and distressed, stumbled his way through the first part of the dance. Gradually, he picked up the steps. Merriman said in, his, in Will's ear, he was told that not one soul here would know of him and that on pain of death, he must not use the old speech to any but you. Then speaking below began again. You look well, Hawken, for a man escaped from death. How do you know these things, girl? Who are you? They would have let you die, Hawken. How could you be so stupid? My master loves me, said Hawken, but there was weakness in it. He used you, Hawken. You are nothing to him. You should follow better masters who would care for your life and lengthen it through the centuries, not confine it to your own. Like the life of an old one? Hawkins said, eagerness waking in his voice for the first time. Will remembered the tinge of envy when Hawkins had spoken to him of the old ones. Now there was a hint of greed as well. The dark and the rider are kinder masters than the light, Maggie Barnes said softly in his ear as the first part of the dance ended. Hawkins stood still again and stared at her until she glanced around and said clearly, I need a cool drink, I believe. And Hawken jumped and led her away, so that now, with his attention caught and a chance to talk to him privately, the girl of the dark would have a willing hearer. Will felt suddenly sickened by the approaching tre treachery and listened no more. He found Merriman beside him, still gazing black into space. So it will be, Merriman said. He will have a sweet picture of the dark to attract him, as men so often do, and beside it, he will set all the demands of the light which are heavy and always will be. All the while, he will be nursing his resentment of the way I might have had him give up his life without reward. You can be sure the dark makes no sign of demanding any such thing. Yet, indeed, its lords never risk demanding death, but only offer a black life. Hawken, he said softly, bleakly, liege man, how can you do what you are going to do? Will felt fear suddenly, and Merriman sensed it. No more of this, he said. It is clear already how it goes. Hawken now will be a leak in the roof, a tunnel in the cellar. And just as the dark could not touch him when he was my liege man, now that he is, the, is liege to the dark, he cannot be destroyed by the light. He will be the dark's ear in our midst, in this house that has been our stronghold. His voice was cold, accepting the inevitable, the pain was gone. Though the witch girl managed to make her way in, she could have accomplished no scrap of magic without being destroyed by the light. But now, whenever Hawken calls them, the dark can attack us here as elsewhere. And the danger will grow with the years. He stood up, fingering his white ruffled cravat. 
There was a terrible sternness in his fierce curved profile, and the look for a moment flared out from the lower brows made Will's blood run thick and slow. It was a judge's face, implacable, condemning. And the doom that Hawken has brought upon himself by this act, Merriman said without expression, is a dread matter which will make him many times wish that he might die. Will stood dazed, caught in pity and alarm. He did not ask what would happen to small bright-eyed Hawken, who had laughed at him and helped him and been so short a while his friend. He did not want to know. Out on the floor, the music of the second part of the dance jingled to a close, and the dancers made one another laughing courtesies. Will stood motionless and unhappy. Merriman's frozen look softened, and he reached out and turned him gently to face the center of the room. Will saw there only a gap in the crowd, with beyond it the group of musicians. As he stood there, they struck up once more. Good King Wenselus, the carol they had been playing when he first entered the room through the doors. Merrily, the whole gathering joined in singing, and then the next verse came, and Merriman's deep voice was ringing out across the room, and Will realized, blinking, that the verse to come was his. He drew it, he drew breath and raised his head. Sire, he lives a good league hence underneath the mountain. And there was no moment of farewell, no moment in which he saw the 19th century vanish away. But suddenly, he, with no awareness of change, as he sang, he knew that time had somehow blinked and another young voice was singing with him. The two of them so nearly simultaneous that anyone who could not see the lips moving would have sworn that it was one boy's voice alone. Ride against the forest fence by St. Agnes Fountain. And he knew that he was standing with James and Mary and the rest, and he and James were singing together, and that the music with their voices was Paul's lone flute. He stood there in the dark entrance hall with his hands raised before his chest holding the lighted candle, and he saw that the candle had not burned down one millimeter further than when he had last looked at it. They finished the carol. Miss Graythorne said, Very good, very good indeed. Nothing like good King Wenceslas. It's always been my favorite. Will peered past his candle flame to look at her motionless form in the big carved chair. Her voice was older, harder, more toughened by the years, and so was her face, but otherwise she was just like her grandmother. Must that younger Miss Graythorne have been, or her great-grandmother? Miss Graythorne said, Huntercombe carol singers have been singing Good King Wenceslas in my house for longer than you, or even I can remember, you know. Well, now, Paul and Robin and the rest of you, how about a little Christmas punch? The question was traditional, and so was the answer. Well, said Robin gravely, thank you, Miss Graythorne, perhaps just a little. Even young Will, too, this year, said Paul. He's 11 now, Miss Graythorne, did you know? The housekeeper was coming forward, forward with a tray of glittering glasses and a great bowl of red-brown punch, and nearly every eye in the room was on Merriman, stepping up to fill the glasses. But Will's gaze was held by the strong, suddenly younger eyes of the figure in the high-backed chair. Yes, said Miss Graythorne softly, almost absent-mindedly. I did remember 
Will Stanton has had a birthday. She turned to Merriman, who was already moving toward them, and took from him the two glasses in his hands. A happy birthday to you, Will Stanton, a seventh son of a seventh son, said Miss Graythorn, and success in your every quest. Thank you, ma'am, said Will, wondering, and they held up their glasses solemnly to one another and and drank, just as the Stanton children did for the Christmas toast on the one day of the year when they were all allowed wine at dinner. Merriman was moving around, and now everyone had a glass of punch and was sipping contentedly. The manor's Christmas punch was always delicious, though no one had ever quite worked out what went into it. As the senior members of the family, the twins strolled dutifully across to chat with Miss Graythorne. Barbara, with Mary in tow, made a beeline for Miss Hampton, the housekeeper, and Annie, the maid, both reluctant members of a village drama group she was trying to force into life. Merriman said to James, you and your brother and your little brother sing very well. James beamed. Though plumper, he was no taller than Will, and it was not often that a stranger gratified him by recognizing him as a superior older brother. We sing in the school choir, he said, and solos at art festivals. Even one in London last year. The music master is very keen on arts and festivals. I'm not, said Will. All those mothers glaring. Well, you were top of your class in London, James said. So of course they all hated you, beating their little darlings. I was only fifth in mine, he said in matter-of-fact tones to Merriman. Will has a lot better voice than me. Oh, come off it, said Will. Yes, you have. James was a fair-minded boy. He genuinely preferred reality to daydreams. Till we both break, at any rate. Neither of us might be any good then, Merriman said absentmindedly. In point of fact, you will become a most accomplished tenor, almost professional standard. Your brother's voice will be baritone, pleasant, but nothing special. I suppose that might be possible, said James, polite but disbelieving. Of course, there's no way at all for anyone to tell yet, Will said belligerently. But he... And caught Merriman's dark eye and stopped. Mm, ah, he said, and James looked at him with astonishment. Miss Graythorne called across the room to Merriman. Paul, would you like to see the old records and flutes? Take him in, would you? Merriman inclined his head in a small bow. He said casually to Will and James, care to come too? No, thank you, said James promptly. His eyes were on the far door, though, through which the housekeeper was advancing with another tray. I smell Miss Hampton's mince pies, Will said, understanding. I'd quite like to see. He moved with Merriman towards Miss Graythorne's chair, where Paul and Robin stood stiff and rather awkward, one at each side, like guardsmen's. Off with you, said Miss Graythorne briskly. Are you going too, Will? Of course. You're another musical one. I was forgetting. Quite a good collection, little collection of instruments and stuff in there. Surprised you haven't seen them before. <clears throat> Lulled by the words, Will said thoughtlessly, In the library? Miss Graythorne's sharp eyes glittered at him. The library, she said. You must be mixing us up with someone else, Will. There's no library here. Once there was a small one with some most valuable books, I believe, but it burned down almost a century ago. That part of the house was struck by lightning. Did a lot of damage, they say. Oh, dear, said Will in some confusion. Well, this is no talk for Christmas, Miss Graythorne said, and waved them off. 
glancing back at her as she turned to Robin with a bright social smile, Will found himself wondering whether the two Miss Graythorns were not one after all. Merriman led him with Paul to a side door, and they walked through a strange, musty-smelling little passage into a high, bright room that Will did not at all recognize. It was only when he caught sight of the fireplace that he realized where he was. There was the wide hearth and the broad mantle with its square panels and carved Tudor rose emblems, but round the rest of the room the paneling was gone. The walls were instead painted flat white, brightened here and there by some large, improbable-looking seascapes done in lurid blues and greens. In the, piece, in the place where Will had once gone into the little library, there was no longer any door. Merriman was unlocking a tall, glass-fronted cabinet that stood against a side wall. Miss Graythorne's father was a very musical gentleman, he said in his butler voice, and artistic too. He painted all those pictures on the walls over there in the West Indies, I believe. These, though, he lifted out a small, beautiful instrument like a recorder, black inlaid with silver. He didn't actually play, they say. He just looked, liked to look at them. Paul was absorbed at once, peering at, into, through the old flutes and recorders as Merriman handed them out of the cupboard. They were both most solemn in their handling. They would put each one carefully back before taking the next one out. <clears throat> Will turned to study the panels around the fireplace, then jumped suddenly as he heard Merriman silently calling to him. At the same time, he could hear Merriman's voice aloud speaking to Paul. It was an eerie combination. Quickly now, said the voice in his mind. You know where to look. Quick, while you have the chance. It is time to take the sign. But, said Will's mind, go on, Merriman silently roared. Will glanced back quickly over his shoulder. The door through which they had come was still half open, but his ears would surely warn him of anyone coming in the passage between this room and the next. He moved, soft-footed to the fireplace, reached up and put his hands on the paneling. Shutting his eyes for an instant, he appealed to all his new gifts and the old world from which they came. Which square panel had it been? Which carved rose? He was confused by the loss of the paneling while all around. The mantle seemed smaller than before. Was the sign lost? Bricked up somewhere behind the flat white wall? He pressed every rose that he could see round the top left corner, left-hand corner of the fireplace, but none moved even a fraction of an inch. Then, at the last moment, he noticed, at the very point of the corner, a rose, part buried in plaster, jutting out of the wall that clearly had been repaired, as well as altered in the last hundred years. Ten minutes, he thought wildly, since he had last seen it. Hastily, Will reached up and pressed high and pressed his thumb as hard as he could against the center of the carved flower, as if it were a bell push. And as he heard the soft click, he was staring into black, a black hole in the wall exactly on the le level of his eyes. He reached in and touched the circle of the sign of, the wo of wood. And as he sighed in relief, relief, his fingers closed around the smooth wood. He heard Paul begin to play one of the old flutes. It was a very tentative playing, a slow uh, arpeggio ar first, then a hesitant run. <clears throat> And then very soft and gently, Paul began playing the melody, Green Sleeves, and Will stood transfixed, not only by the lovely lilt of the old tune, but by the sound of the instrument itself. For though the melody was different, this was his music, his enchantment, the same eerie, faraway tone that he, he, that he heard always. And then, 
always lost at those moments in his life that mattered most. What was the nature of this flute that his brother was playing? Was it part of the old ones belonging to their magic or simply something very like made by men? He drew his hand back from the gap in the wall, which closed instantly before he could press the rose again, and he was sliding the sign of wood into his pocket as he turned, lost in listening. And then he froze. Paul stood playing across the room beside the cabinet. Merriman had his back turned and his hands on the glass doors, but now the room held two other figures as well. In the doorway through which they had come stood Maggie Barnes, staring not at Will but at Paul with a look of dreadful malevolence. And close beside Will, very close, in the spot where the door to the old library had once been, towering, towered the black rider. He was within arm's length of Will, though he did not move, but stood transfixed as if the music had arrested him mid-stride. His eyes were closed, his lips silently moving. His hands were stretched out, pointing ominously towards Paul as the sweet, unearthly music went on. Will did one thing well from the instinct of his new learning. Instantly, he flung up a wall of resistance around Merriman and Paul and himself so that the two of the dark swayed backward from the force of it. But at the same time, he shrieked, Merriman! And as the music broke off and both Paul and Merriman swung around in swift horror, swift horror, he knew what he had done wrong. He had not called as the old ones should call one another through the mind. He had made the very bad mistake of shouting aloud. The writer and Maggie Barnes vanished instantly. Paul was striding across the room in concern. What on earth's up, Will? Did you get hurt yourself? Merriman said swiftly, smoothly from behind him. He stumbled, I think and Will had the wit to crease his face with pain, bend slowly over as if in anguish and clutch hard at one arm. There was the sound of running feet, and Robin burst into the room from the passage, with Barbara close behind. What's the matter? We heard the most awful yell. He looked at Will and slowed to a halt, puzzled. You all right, Will? Uh, said Will. I, uh, I just banged my funny bone. Sorry, it hurt. Sounded as as if someone was murdering you, Barbara said, reproachfully. Shamelessly, Will took refuge in rudeness, his fingers curling in his pocket to make sure the third sign was safe. Well, I'm sorry to disappoint you, he said petulantly, but really, I'm all right. I just banged myself and yelled, that's all. Sorry if you were frightened. I don't see what all the fuss is about. Robin glared at him. Catching, Catch me running anywhere to rescue you next time, he said witheringly. Talk about the boy crying wolf. Barbara said. I think, Mary Mid said gently, closing the cupboard and turning the key, that we should all go and give Miss Graythorn one more carol. And quite forgetting that he was no more than the butler, they all filed dutifully out of the room in his wake. Will called after him in proper silence this time. But I must speak to you. The writer was here and the girl. Merriman said into his mind, I know. Later, they have ways of hearing this kind of talk, remember? and he moved on, leaving Will twitching with exasperation and alarm. In the doorway, Paul paused, took Will firmly by the shoulder, and turned him to look in his face. Are you really all right? Honest. Sorry about the noise. That flute sounded super. Fantastic thing. Paul let him go, turning to gaze longingly at the cupboard. Really, I've never heard anything like it, and of course never played one. You've no idea. Will, I can't describe. It's tremendously old, and yet the condition it's in, it might might be almost new. And the tone of it? 
There was an ache in his voice and his face was something in Will, some was in his face and in his face that something in Will responded to with a deep ancient sympathy. An old one, he suddenly knew, was doomed always to feel this same formless, nameless longing for something out of reach as an endless part of life. I'd give anything, Paul said, to have a flute like that one day. Almost anything, Will said gently. Paul stared at him in astonishment, and the old one and Will suddenly realized belatedly that this was not perhaps the response of a small boy. So he grinned, stuck out his tongue impishly at Paul, and skipped through the passage back to the normal relationships of the normal world. They sang the first Noel as their, fir- as their last carol. They made their farewells. They were out again in the snow and the crisp air, with Merriman's impassive, polite smile disappearing behind the manor doors. Will stood on the broad stone steps and gazed up at the stars. The clouds had cleared at last, and now the stars blazed like pinpricks of white fire in the black hollow of the night sky. In all the strange patterns that had been a complicated mystery to him all his life, but were endlessly significant now. See how bright the Pleiades are tonight, he said softly. And Mary stared at him in amazement and said, the what? So Will brought his attention down out of the fiery black heavens and in their own small yellow torchlit world, the Stanton carolers trooped home. He walked among them speechless as if in a dream. They went, they, they thought, <clears throat> they thought him tired, but he was floating in wonder. He had three of the signs of power now. He had too the knowledge to use the gift of grammar eye. A long lifetime, a long lifetime of discovery and wisdom given to him in a moment of suspend of a suspended time. He was not the same Will Stanton that he had been a very few days before. Now and forever he knew he inhabited a different time scale from that of everyone he had ever known or loved. But he managed to turn his thoughts away from all these things, even from the two invading, threatening figures of the dark. For this was Christmas, which had always been a time of magic to him and to all the world. This was a brightness, a shining festival, and while its enchantment was on the world, the charmed circle of his family and home would be protected against any invasion from outside. Indoors, the tree glowed and glittered, and the music of Christmas was in the air, and spicy smells came from the kitchen, and in the broad hearth of the living room, the great twisted yule root flickered and flamed as it gently burned down. Will lay on his back on the hearth rug, staring into the smoke, wreathing in the up the chimney, and was suddenly very sleepy indeed. James and Mary, too, were trying not to yawn, and even Robin looked heavy-lidded. Too much punch, said James, as his tall brother stretched gaping in an armchair. Get lost, said Robin amiably. Who'd like a mince pie? <clears throat> said Mrs. Stanton, coming in with a vast tray of cocoa mugs. James had had six already, said Mary in prim disapproval, at the manor. Now it's eight, said James, a mince pie in each hand. Yeah. You'll get fat, Robin said. Better than being fat already, James said, through a mouthful, and stared pointedly at Mary, whose plump form had recently become her most gloomy preoccupation. Mary's mouth dropped, drooped, then tightened, and she advanced on him, making a snarling sound. Ho, 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 said Wills, sepulchrally from the floor. Good little children never fight at Christmas. And since Mary was irresistib- 
irresistibly close to him, he grabbed her by the ankle. She collapsed on top of him, howling cheerfully. Mind of the fire, said Mrs. Stanton, from years of habit. Ow, said Will, as his sister thumped him in the stomach, and he rolled away out of reach. Mary stopped and sat sat gazing at him curiously. Why on earth have you got so many buckles on your belt, she demanded. Will tugged his sweater hastily down over his belt, but it was too late. Everyone had seen. Mary reached forward and yanked the sweater up again. What funny things. What are they? Just decoration, said Will gruffly. I made them in metalwork at school. I never saw you, said James. You never looked then. Mary prodded a finger forward at the first circle on Will's belt and rolled back with a howl. It burned me, she shrieked. Very probably, said her brother, her mother. Will and his belt have both been lying next to the fire, and you'll both be on top of it if you are if you go on rolling about like that, come on now. Christmas Eve drink, Christmas Eve mince pies, Christmas Eve bed. Will scrambled gratefully to his feet. I'll get my presents while the cocoa cools off. So will I, Mary followed him. On the stairs, she said, those buckle things are pretty. Will you, will you make me one for a brooch next year, next term? I might, Will said, and he grinned to himself. Mary's curiosity was never much to worry about. It always led to the same place. They pounded up their, pounded up to their respective bedrooms and came down laden with packages to be added to the growing pile beneath the tree. Will had been trying hard not to look at this magical heap ever since they came in from carol singing, but it was sorely difficult, especially since he could see one gigantic box labeled with a name that clearly began with a W. Who else began with W after all? He forced himself to ignore it and resolutely piled his own armful in a space at the side of the tree. You're watching, James, Mary shrilled behind him. I am not, said James. Then he said, <clears throat> because it was Christmas Eve. Well, yes, I expect I was. Sorry. And Mary was so taken aback that she deposited all her parcels in silence, unable to think of anything to say. On Christmas night, Will always slept with James. Both twin beds were still in James's room from the time before Will had moved up to the Stevens attic. The only difference now was that James kept Will's old bed piled with op art cushions and referred to it as his as my chaise lounge. There was something else, something about Christmas Eve they both felt that demanded company. One needed somebody to whisper to during the warm, beautiful, dream-taught moments between hanging the empty stockings at the end of the bed and the and dropping into the cozy oblivion that would flower into the marvel of Christmas morning. While James was splashing in the bathroom, Will slipped off his belt, buckled it again round the three sides, and put them under his pillow. It seemed prudent, even though he still knew without hesitation that no one and nothing would trouble him or his home during this night. Tonight, perhaps for the last time, he was an ordinary boy again. Strands of music and the soft rumble of voices drifted up from below. In solemn ritual, Will and James looped their Christmas stockings over the, their bedposts, precious, unbeautiful brown stockings of a thick, soft stuff worn by their mother in some unimaginable distant time and misshapen now by years of service as Christmas holdalls. 
When filled, they would become top-heavy and could no longer hang. They would be discovered, instead lying magnificent across the foot of the beds. But I know what mum and dad are giving you, James said softly. Bet it's a, don't you dare, Will hissed, and his brother giggled and dived under the blankets. Good night, Will. Night. Happy Christmas. Happy Christmas. And it was the same as it always was as he laid curled up happily in his snug wrappings, promising himself that he would stay awake until, until, until he woke in the dim morning room with a glimmer of light creeping round the dark square of the curtain window and saw and heard nothing for an enchanted expectant space because all his senses were concentrated on the weighty feel over and around his blanketed feet of strange bumps and corners and shapes that had not been there when he fell asleep. And it was Christmas Day. <laughs>